Good morning. And thank you to the Halls for doing music. Thank you. She's not in the room, but thank you to Olivia for singing for us. That was lovely. Uh, we'll be in quite a few different passages this morning. Um, also, I'd like to say it's not in the Bible, but blessed are those who come to church when Illinois has a basketball game for their reward will be great. I would also like to say, just in case there's any doubt, I do hope they win today. Uh, if they're not playing Ohio State and they're not playing Auburn, Carey's school, I hope they win every game they play. So I hope they win today. And uh, Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day and the opportunity we have once again to come together to worship you, to sing to your great name, and to praise your great name. Lord, what a privilege that is. Lord, we pray for our time as we worship you. Lord, whatever we have going on, whatever we've faced this week, whatever stresses we have coming up this next week, Lord, may this time be a set-aside time, Lord, just to totally throw ourselves into worshiping you and turning our focus and attention and love on you. And Lord, we pray for our time as we study in your word that we would be pointed to you. Lord, may we see that you are the king, the king of the universe. Lord, we bring prayers today on behalf of those whom we know and those who the people of the church know. Lord, we continue to pray for Ruby's daughter, Kay, as she's in the hospital. We pray, Lord, for a, a speedy recovery for her. We pray for the doctors and nurses who are treating her. Lord, we pray that she get to feeling better very quickly and get back home very soon. Lord, we also pray for Rich and Kara Eisenman and for their great niece who tragically passed away this week. Lord, we, we pray for the family, Lord. We pray for her parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. Lord, devastating to see a loss of a young person, Lord. It, is always a reminder of the starkness and fallenness that our world is, Lord, and it never makes sense when things like this happen. And in, this, in, in the face of that, Lord, we just continue to pray for your grace for the whole family, Lord, as they grieve, as they process a terrible loss. Lord, we, we pray for your comfort. We pray for people in the family who know you, that they can be a comfort to the family. Lord, we also continue to pray for Ukraine in that terrible situation and the people of that nation. And Lord, we, we think of the millions of refugees. We think of the families that have been separated because of this war. And Lord, we, we pray for them. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to do something today that I've never done before. If you've been here during my tenure over the last two and a half years, you know that I talk a lot about biblical themes. Uh, I don't know if I've ever really spoken on a Sunday about how biblical themes work, though. If you think of the Bible as one long story, you have these 10 to 12 to 15 major themes that run throughout the whole Bible. 
temple, priest, sacrifice, rest, among others. And the major themes are found all throughout the Bible. There's a certain pattern that they generally follow. You'll see major biblical themes in creation, typically within the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. You'll see them elsewhere in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. You'll see major themes in Israelite history. Most major biblical themes make an appearance in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You'll see them in the Psalms and in the Prophets. In the New Testament, you see major themes in the Gospels. They're in Paul, although sometimes a little bit more subtly. Paul's more doctrinal than thematic oftentimes, but they're still there. Most major themes you see in the book of Hebrews. There was a New Testament professor at Trinity where I went to seminary who used to say, all roads lead to Hebrews. And then you'll see major themes typically in the last two to three chapters of the book of Revelation. Again, there's this pattern that they follow. I think of the Bible, it's almost like it's a big map. And I think of the themes as train tracks running throughout the whole book, crisscrossing the map. And you have some places where more than one theme converges. A place like 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's like Union Station in Chicago, where you have so many of these different themes all coming together before going back out into the rest of the Bible in various directions. And part of the benefit of studying biblical themes is that as you have a theme that develops, you see the richness of the theme as it goes through the biblical storyline. And the Bible progresses, and you get more information, more context, and a fuller picture of the theme and how it fits into the storyline of the Bible. And personally, I've always found that incredibly edifying and enriching to see God's wisdom and how these ideas develop through his word, especially when you consider that the Bible is 66 books written over many centuries by different writers of different stations in life. You have kings and fishermen in three different languages, and yet you have this consistency of this development of these thematic patterns all throughout the Bible. And so what I've never done before here is devoted an entire sermon to a biblical theme. But as we near the end of the Gospel of John, and as we get close to Easter, and as we study the events surrounding the trial and crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus, I wanted to talk today about the biblical theme of kingship. And I think that'll be helpful in preparing us as we prepare for the next couple of sections of John's Gospel. Also, as we begin, I wanted to mention a book that was very helpful for me this morning, or this week in preparing, is uh, a book called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross by a man named Patrick Schreiner. And if you read things like the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God blogs often, you might have heard of a man named Thomas Schreiner, who's a New Testament scholar. Patrick Schreiner's his son. So he has this book, and it's part of a new series by Crossway called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. This book's under 140 pages, and again, just goes from Genesis through Revelation and tracing this theme out throughout the Bible. And they have other, other books in the series, 
So if you're ever looking for a good read, uh, I, I think these are good books. They're short, they're simple, uh, but there's a lot of good stuff that's in them. And it was definitely helpful for me this week. Um, with that, we'll jump into our passage this morning as we discuss the theme of kingship. And we'll begin our study in the book of Genesis, where the ultimate king is God. He is the ultimate sovereign over all of creation. And Genesis 1, we see the creation of the heavens and the earth by the power of God's word. The Lord is the king who decrees. He speaks and it comes into existence. As the psalmist says in Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Not only is God the king over people, And over the territories of the earth. But he's the king of the whole universe. The king of the stars and the galaxies. The king of the laws of nature. The plants and the animals. In creation, we see God allow two people to serve as his vice regents. A king and queen in the earth. God gives man dominion to rule over the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve, the king and queen of the earth, will be given a kingdom. And the kingdom that they rule is a garden. But the kingdom is quickly corrupted when the first king and queen have their attention turned from the true kingdom to a false and competing kingdom. They're turned from the kingdom of God into the kingdom of the world. They go from the kingdom of life to the kingdom of death. They go from a kingdom of righteousness to a kingdom of sin. The king and queen lose the throne. In God's judgment, there is an undoing of the kingdom. Instead of ruling over the land, they become exiles who are cast out of the kingdom. Instead of enjoying the benefits of the land, the man's work becomes toilsome. Instead of living with abundance, he will be at the mercy of the elements. Instead of the world being subject to him, he will largely be subject to the world. Instead of living in harmony with the queen, there will be strife. Instead of ruling in a place of life, they will have to live in a place of death. But a royal line remains. And in the face of that sin, in God's goodness and grace, a promise is made of a future king who will restore the throne. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the servant who tempted the king and queen to sin, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. An offspring of the woman is promised who will come and defeat the devil, defeat evil, who has turned humanity from the true kingdom to a false and competing kingdom. 
he will lose to this coming king. That is what introduces the kingship theme. It'll continue to run from Genesis throughout the rest of the Bible. Because of the prophesied future king, the line must continue. But rebellion also continues. Genesis devotes significant time to genealogies. It's tracing the royal lineage. But you also have various splinterings off of that genealogy. In some cases, forming other kingdoms who will eventually oppose the royal kingdom. In Genesis chapter 12, we come to Abraham. It's through this man with whom the Lord will make a covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first thing Abraham is told is to leave his country. It's because he's meant for a greater land. As the kingdom theme progresses, land becomes an inseparable aspect of the theme. A king needs a kingdom. And the first kingdom, the Garden of Eden, was lost due to sin. God tells Abraham that he will be a blessing and a great nation. And that there will be curses upon those who dishonor him. Later on, we'll learn that the future king himself will come from Abraham's line. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham comes under attack by competing kings, which will become a common recurrence in the Old Testament. The kingdoms of this world battling the kingdom the Lord is establishing in the world. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is given the promise of future offspring. 15.5, God says to Abraham, he brought him out and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. As Adam and Eve had been told to be fruitful and multiply, Abraham has promised offspring, which will be as numerous as the stars. Abraham's wife, Sarah, which not coincidentally means princess, is also part of the promise as she's told that kings will come from her in Genesis 17, 16. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Her first son is Isaac. The line continues from Isaac to Jacob and from Jacob to Judah. When Jacob is dying at the end of the book of Genesis, we see him bless his son Judah when he tells him in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be obedience of the peoples. The scepter shall never pass from Judah's line. Now, before we continue, it must be understood that we have this royal line, but we also must remember that the ultimate king is still the Lord. And it is the Lord who is advancing his kingdom. Exodus begins about 400 years after the book of Genesis. 
And the Israelites, the people of God who have a royal genealogy and the promise of a land to live in, their own kingdom, in spite of all of that, they find themselves as subjects in another kingdom, Egypt. They've been driven out due to famine in Genesis, but there was increasing hostility against the Israelites from the Egyptians. Now, over the next several books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses will be the primary human figure, but it should be noted that Moses is not in the royal line. He's not a king. But the Israelites must deal with the conflict of living under the king of Egypt. And so a major theme in Exodus, if you were here last fall, you remember, is that there's this conflict in Exodus between the Lord God, the true king, and the anti-God, Pharaoh, who's an earthly king. As God commands Pharaoh to release the Israelites, Pharaoh continues to refuse, and you see a series of plagues which undo life in Egypt. The focus becomes the pursuit, after that point, of the promised kingdom land that the Lord has promised. We see the giving of God's law, which regulates how people are supposed to live as God's people in his land. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there you have Israel's obedience to the law connected with kingdom language, as God says that they will be a kingdom of priests. Leviticus deals with being fit to be God's people and deals with, among other things, atonement. The book of Numbers is the story of God's people preparing to enter the promised kingdom land. There's also a continuation of conflicts with surrounding nations and surrounding kingdoms. Deuteronomy begins to give instructions for how a human king is to rule, despite the fact that at that point in Israelite history, the Israelites don't have a king during their wanderings. But before they even have a king, Deuteronomy chapter 17 is giving instructions for what the people are to look for and powerfully combines the appropriate rule of a king with obedience to the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, instructs the king to have his own handwritten copy of the law. It says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in this kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the king of Israel is told, that what he will need to do is write by his own hand, his own copy of the Old Testament law, to read that, to know it, to lead by it. It's fitting that the longest chapter in the entire Bible, written by a king, King David, Psalm 119, 
is all about his love for God's law. In the book of Joshua, which, as I've mentioned before, is the best book in the Bible, the Israelites come into the land. But then in the book of Judges, it's a unique time in Israel's history. They're in the land, yet they don't have a king. The nation is ruled by judges. And when you hear judges, don't picture Judge Judy. But the judges were these Israelite rulers. They were not kings. They did not rule over all of Israel. And their judgeship was not something that automatically got passed on to their sons, like how a royal lineage does. So it's not the same thing as a king. But all was not well in Israel. In the book of Judges, the Israelites keep getting themselves into trouble because of sin and disobedience. And they keep needing new judges to rise up and save them. And then the Israelites return to their old sinful habits. In the final chapters of the book of Judges, it keeps repeating the refrain, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We come to 1 Samuel. The Israelites have had enough. They want a king. Now, there wasn't anything inherently wrong with them wanting a king. Although their reasons for wanting a king were wrong. The last of the Israelite judges is Samuel, and the Israelites approach him in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They want a king just like how all the other nations have kings. But the other nations are sinful. Israel has fought wars against the other nations. And the people are warned that it will not go well. There will be more taxes, more wars, but they still want a king. The problem with them wanting a king, like how all the other nations had a king, was that they were overlooking the true king, God. But God gives the people what they want. He gives them a king. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes we want something that's unwise and God will give it to us so we can learn the hard way that it wasn't what we needed. It doesn't go well. The first king of Israel is a man named Saul. He starts out fine, has some early military victories, but eventually spirals into sin and paranoia. Lord willing, I would actually like to do a few weeks on his story this summer after we're finished with the Gospel of John. One of the consequences of Saul's sin is that his dynasty will not be passed on to his son. He's instead succeeded by the man who would become the most well-known king of Israel, King David. D.A. Carson notes that at the beginning of David's reign, he unites the tribes Israel's united. There's stability and peace and some level of prosperity in Israel. David certainly has his sins, if you know his story in the Bible, but he's a pretty good king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, which I mentioned in the beginning, David has achieved these successes, and he believes that it should be fitting that he build God's temple. To this point in Israel's history, they did not have a, a temple in Jerusalem. 
2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now, when the king lived in the house and the Lord had given him rest from all surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He's referring to the ark of the covenant is still inside the tabernacle instead of the proper temple. And he wants to build the temple. But the Lord will tell him that it's not the right time. The temple instead will be built under David's son Solomon. But David is told something that will be a great blessing to him. Which is the next major development in the, in the kingship theme. He's told that the future king who would come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah would be born in the line of David. 2 Samuel 7, from the middle of verse 11 to the end of verse 12. The Lord says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. The Lord says he will make... David a house. Now, when it refers to his house, we use similar terminology to that still when we say things like the house of Windsor, referring to the British royal family. It's referring to the whole family line. And God is telling David about the house of David. He says, when you lie down with your fathers, which is a euphemism for death, that after David has gone, one of his sons, somebody from his line, will have a kingdom. Verse 13 He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there's a lot of really interesting things in this passage that we don't have time to develop. But the Lord says again in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7 is important in the development of the kingship theme because it talks of a coming Davidic king who will have a never-ending kingdom. Other books after that in the Old Testament will pick up this language. Again, it's important to understand these biblical themes, that they are developing and advancing throughout the Bible. And David has promised a never-ending kingdom. Carson points out that for a kingdom to never end implies one of two things. Either an eternal succession of kings, one after the other. And perhaps that's what the Israelites would have thought in David's day. Or the other possibility is a king who never dies. When does the second kingdom begin? When does David's eternal line begin? Is it with David's son Solomon? who becomes king in the book of 1 Kings. We see in that book that Solomon himself is not good. He's not a good king. He's not as good of a king as his father. He takes many wives. He spends lavishly on building projects. He does build the temple, but he builds his own palace to himself, which is even more grand and big. Solomon is followed by Rehoboam, who's even worse. During his reign, Israel splits. I've talked about that before. A united Israel divides and never again reunites. In the biblical books of Kings and Chronicles, 
We see the wickedness of many of Israel's kings. Their great sins, their failures to lead Israel to follow the law of the Old Testament. If you remember at Christmas time this past year, we talked about many of these kings. All the warnings from 1 Samuel chapter 8 come true. Things do not go well for Israel under the monarchy. They have continued hostility and wars against surrounding nations. The kings of the world come into conflict with the kings of Israel. Meanwhile, the kings of Israel continue to sin. God raises up prophets to warn the kings and the Israelites of their sin and calls them to repent. And that's the last major area I want to focus on this morning. The kingship theme and the prophets. I find Patrick Schreiner's summaries especially helpful in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah as he talks about the kingship theme. Schreiner says, The image of a king governs the entire book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet receives a dramatic vision of the throne room of heaven. Once again, noting the royal language. I don't have a slide for this, but Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As I keep pointing out, throughout all of this, God is the true King. In a scene in Isaiah chapters 7 through 9, we see the faithlessness of King Ahaz and a prophecy for this mysterious Emmanuel figure who will be born of a young woman. The qualities of that figure are elaborated upon in Isaiah chapter 9. We learn that Emmanuel is king. Isaiah 9 verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Certainly that's a familiar Christmas time verse. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom... To establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So I think we tend to focus on the descriptions. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Certainly important. But what it's saying in the next verse is that this person is the promised Davidic king who will have the eternal kingdom. We see this similar language, similar thought, at the opening of the Gospel of Luke. We see that at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is specifically identified as this Emmanuel figure. 
In Luke, we're pointed to Christ's eternal kingdom when the angel tells Mary that she's going to carry the Son of God. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, going back to 2 Samuel 7, the rest of the Bible continues to pick up the language that is used in 2 Samuel 7. That's how these themes develop. There are other Davidic passages in the book of Isaiah talking of this coming king. Isaiah 11 being an example. Isaiah is interesting, though, because it gives us both images of a conquering, glorious Davidic king. But then in the second half of Isaiah, he will contrast the Davidic king imagery with another series of prophecies about a suffering servant of the Lord. And with the kingship language, the suffering servant of the Lord imagery will also be fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah 49.6 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The best known passage on the theme of the suffering servant is found in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Just to read an excerpt from that. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Keep in mind, that's written hundreds of years before Christ. Jeremiah as another prophet who brings warnings to Israel about the failure of their kings to keep God's law and covenant. During his ministry, Jeremiah During the ministry of Jeremiah, the city of Jerusalem falls, and the Israelites are exiled. After many generations of wicked and sinful kings, no one sits on the throne in Jerusalem. At that time, it could have looked as though God's promise was not going to come true. That a Davidic king would not come and usher in an unending kingdom. But Jeremiah also looks forward to a future king who would bring restoration for the Israelites. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, he points to the coming Davidic king who will rule and reign wisely and execute justice in the land. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from, for David a righteous branch And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he is called, the Lord 
is our righteousness. Then again in Jeremiah chapter 20, 31, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more, they shall use the words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there for, together and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. So we have these promises, these hopeful prophecies. Yet the exile still happens. The kingdom is lost when the Israelites are conquered in 586 BC. And that too is an important aspect of the theme of kingship. Exile from the kingdom. We see it in the garden when Adam and Eve are banished. Genesis ends and Exodus begins with the Israelites exiled in a foreign land, Egypt. During the Exodus wanderings, the Israelites are without a home. And six centuries before Christ, the Israelites again lose the kingdom, lose the land, lose the monarchy, and go into exile. And Christ himself would be born into a world where Israel was occupied by Rome, exiles in their own land. The kings and Israel continue to sin. But as the Old Testament comes to a close, the Israelites just had the promise to look forward to of a future coming Davidic king. In the shadow of the Roman Empire, on the day he was crucified, Jesus would be questioned by a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. He says in John chapter 18, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Lord willing, we'll explore that conversation next week. Israel looked forward and longed for the coming day of a future king. The Old Testament includes dozens of stories of kings, some good, some bad. Some who feared the Lord, some who didn't. Kings of Israel, kings of Egypt, kings of Babylon, Persia, Assyria, Syria, Canaan, Gath, Moab, and many other nations. But we also see the true king, the Lord God, and a world who constantly turns from him and wishes to follow the kingdoms of this world over God. And we see the story of the coming king from the line of David who would rule with justice and suffer righteously on behalf of his people for the sake of a new kingdom that he was ushering in on earth as it is in heaven. And so I close with this simple question. Who is your king? And really think about that for a moment. Do you try to set yourself up as the king of your own life? Or is there a circumstance or desire or fear or sin 
that rules over you and which is your true master? Or is your king the king of kings? And is he the one who is leading your life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have a King of Kings, that we have a Lord of Lords. Lord, that everything that is pointed to in the Old Testament, which is fulfilled in Christ, Lord, that he is the Lord and Savior of the world. He is the suffering servant. He is the righteous one who has a kingdom that will never end because he is the king who will never die. And he invites us to know him and to enjoy and experience eternal life to his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing page 271.